Uh, today's reading comes from John 6, 1 through 21. John 6, 1 through 21. After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. And a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. Lifting up his eyes then and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? And he said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered him, 200 denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, there is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they? so many. Jesus said, have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated. So also the fish, as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, This is indeed the prophet who has come into the world. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. When evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got into a boat, and started across the sea to Capernaum. It was now dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. The sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing. When they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat, and they were frightened. But he said to them, it is I, do not be afraid. Then they were glad to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Uh, Well, jumping in this morning, uh, uh, you know, last week, we, we talked about, it was our vision week, and we, we talked about what it looked like to venture into the wilderness, and we talked about the need to burn the boats as, as we follow Jesus wherever he's calling us, kind of burn whatever, whatever the boats are in the harbor that are holding us back from following Jesus. And one of the boats that I, I, I not only dared you, but I super spiritually double dog dared you to burn <laughs> was the boat of silence. And, and, and the boat of silence, what I mean by that is just to, to begin to share, like say, what do you... What do you think about Jesus? Do you want to talk about faith? Just, just take a step towards him and open up the conversation and burn that boat of silence and, and speak up. And, and one of the things that is clear to me that happened this week is that many of you did. Um, and I know that because uh, I started getting a lot of text messages and phone calls. <laughs> and I got those text messages and phone calls where it was something like, well, uh, pastor, I burned the boat. Uh, and I got some questions now, right? <laughs> and I've got, I've got things that, how do I respond to this situation? How do I respond to this situation? And how do I answer this question? And hey, now, as we're having conversations, this need is coming up. And, and what about this scenario? What about this situation? And, and I, I, after about two days or so, this was happening throughout the day, I just thought to myself, well, what in the world did I unleash, right? Because <laughs> you guys started burning boats, you started speaking up, you started talking to people, and, 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 and see, one of the things that happens 
is once we take that step and we follow Jesus into the, the wilderness and we begin to, to speak into the midst of the restlessness of the world around us and, and we begin to share of the life that is in Jesus, what happens is then, lo and behold, when we're willing to speak and just, just speak a little bit, just bring up the topic, what happens is, lo and behold, everyone starts responding. And, and, and the crowds start drawing near, and they start asking, they start realizing in the midst of it, we're saying, oh my goodness, we've been praying. What, what if the 1% of Columbia, what if they came? What if, what if the crowds, what if they were drawing near? We've been praying about this. We've been dreaming about this. We've been thinking, and we've been planning for this. And then all of a sudden, you look up and you go, uh-oh, they're coming, right? <laughs> oh, no. They're, 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 they're coming, and, and, and they're coming with all their questions, and they're coming with all their assumptions, and they're, they're coming with all their needs, and they're coming with all their defaults, and they're coming with all their arguments, and they're coming, and they're coming. And in the midst of it, it's almost as if this moment that's mo- where we think is going to be filled with awe, all of a sudden becomes this crisis moment in the midst of it. Because we realize when the life of Christ goes out, then all of a sudden people begin to be drawn, and we enter in then to this process of worry and overwhelm and anxiety about how do we answer all the questions? How do we meet all the needs? Are, are you ready for this? Are you, do you have a plan for this? Do you have a structure for this? Or is there some kind of program for this? How do we respond in the midst of it? And here's the thing. In the midst of it, this is something that happens in every generation. In the midst of the gospel call going out and people coming, then hearing that and coming to Christ for life, in the midst of it, it it brings us into this new phase, which is almost like this crisis point where you realize, oh my goodness, this is way beyond our capabilities. This is way beyond our capabilities. How are we to bring them to life in Christ? And this is exactly where we pick up actually this fall in John's gospel. We started in chapters one through five last year and we took a break over the summer. And we're picking John up in chapter 6 this fall, and we'll be marching through John all the way up into the resurrection scene at Easter. And John's gospel, the whole point of John's gospel, John, it's interesting, at the end of of it in chapter 20, he gives us essentially his thesis statement. And he says this, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. John says, Jesus did a lot more than I recorded in my gospel. There's a lot more that I could have put in here. But these, these specific scenes, these words, these things I've decided to include are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And here's the thing, and by believing, you may have life in his name. Every scene in John's gospel is there so that we might further and further in deeper ways see how we might find life in Jesus' name. And here's the thing today. When we step out into the world, when, when the crowds start coming, they're going to hear of, of life in Jesus. They're going to begin drawing near. And, and what we're going to see today is we encounter when the disciples, the gospel goes out, people, the crowds are drawing near. And in the midst of it, what happens is now are they seeking life, but Jesus is going to help his disciples see something new. They're gonna, he's going to help them see his sufficiency. As they wonder, how in the world do I respond? How, what's, what's my contribution to this? What, how, how do, what do I do here? And he's going to show them depths of his sufficiency. That he is the one who is enough. That he's the one who does it. He's going to deepen that understanding of our life in him by understanding the sufficiency that we have in him. And so here's what we're going to look at today in this text. We're going to look at first the crisis of the crowd. 
Let's kind of look at that, the crisis of the crowd drawing in. And then second, the crisis of the congregation. What happens if they, the disciples, don't respond in a way that's healthy? The crisis of the congregation. And then third, the call to contribute. How, how are we to respond? How are we to contribute? How do we even know what we're to contribute? How do we discern that? So we'll be looking at. So let's pray and then we'll dive in. Uh, Heavenly Father, thank you for, uh, Lord, your word. Lord, I ask that you would, uh, Lord, you would just speak this morning. Uh, Lord, we ask that this morning in, in the midst of stepping out there and, and beginning to speak and open up conversation about you with those in our lives, Lord, we're in, in the midst of it, we're wondering as they begin to respond, it, I, we feel our insufficiency. We feel that we're, we're not enough. We don't have the answers. We don't have the fix. We don't have the room in our homes. We don't, whatever it might be, Lord, we realize our weakness. We realize our limitations. Lord, help us in the midst of that crisis moment. Lord, help us to turn to you. Help us to see your sufficiency from beginning to end. And Lord, may our souls find rest there. I ask you to do this in Jesus' name. Amen. The crisis of the crowd. Well, in, in John's day, the word had gotten out about Jesus. Right, so the first five chapters of John's gospel is all about Jesus calling the disciples, and then he's telling the disciples to go. And in other words, what's happened by chapter 6 is the disciples have completely burned the boats of silence. They're, they're going to their hometown, they're going to their families, they're going to everyone they've ever known, and they've been making Jesus known, and they've followed Jesus. They've, they've prayed for the crowds to come. They've, 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 they've dreamt of the day that these crowds would come. They planned for the day that these crowds would come. They strategized for how to reach the crowds. And then here they come. Again, verses 1 through 5, after this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias, and a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing with the sick. Jesus went on up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. Lifting up his eyes then and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? You know, it's, it's interesting, it's funny. Philip is the one, specifically. I, I think of all the disciples, it's the only one that John has ever said made a comment, like an editorial comment and a side comment to say that that Philip is the one who keeps talking about Jesus. Back in chapter one, he's the one disciple who says, he's, he just keeps telling people about Jesus. Everyone in his hometown is hearing about Jesus because Philip keeps talking about him. And, and so what does Jesus do when all the crowds now start responding is he kind of turns to Philip and he's like, like, Philip's like, they're finally coming. And then Jesus is like, all right, what's your plan, big guy, right? <laughs> you ready? You've been praying about this? You've been dreaming about it? You've been telling everybody about me? And everyone's, you've gotten everyone excited about this day. And here it is. And they're finally coming. So what's your plan? All right? Because Jesus knows that they look forward to this day. And now that they're showing up with all their questions, with all their needs, with all their even demands, their assumptions, their dependency, all the things that they're bringing to the table in the midst of it, and ironically, in this moment, that should be a moment where they just fall down in awe, when a moment when they should be weeping, in a moment when they should be going, how, this, it's happening, where they're excited, they're just overflowing with joy. Instead of that moment, it's a crisis moment. Because they're looking around and they're realizing the real reality of the need of humanity, of, of the need for life, the need for answers, of the need for truth, of the need for willpower, of the need for hope, of the need for purpose, of all these things are bringing them to them, and they realize the weight of that. And in the picture here, just their hunger 
It's just a physical manifestation of this broader reality that all of humanity has. We have a hunger for life. And so in the midst of it, when it should be this moment of excitement, it's this crisis moment. You know, I, when I was reflecting on this passage, I, I've been reminded of, I, I've hit this point two times where I can just remember it. Uh, one was um, when I was younger in seminary, I was at a church in Louisville, and we went in the time I was there from um, about 800 people to I think about 4,000 in a little under two years. And, and we saw unbelievable revival. This wasn't just, you know, people were coming from other churches in the city. Uh, we saw all kinds of individuals who had no church background coming into our small groups. We, we saw our small groups going out into the city, into the underground music scene, and going out into the theaters, and because it's the foodie scene. If you lived in Louisville, you know what I'm talking about. Uh, and so these main avenues and underground realities in the city, and they were there, and they were reaching, and people were just coming to Christ right and left. We were baptizing constantly. We had constantly people coming into membership, and people were going, and, but here's the thing. When they came, they're coming in the door, and they're going, how do I, now, now I'm, I've learned about Jesus. What do I do with my marriage? My marriage is completely a mess. Oh, what, what, what do I do about my finances? You don't understand. My finances are completely a mess. What do I do about my relationships? My, my relationship with my family, it's completely a mess. My, my children, what do I do here? How do I parent children? What's wrong with them? Good grief, right? Like all these things are coming. And, and I remember this happened again when I was, before I came here two years ago, I was um, pastoring a church in Southern California and I was there for about eight years and it was kind of my first pastoral gig, I guess you could say. And, and, and there we, we saw... Uh, this same thing where it wasn't quite that numerically large, but all these individuals coming in by the tens and being baptized and, and coming in and going, hey, I'm, I, I was transitioning. Um, and, and now I'm, I'm, I'm a male, but I was a female. And so now I'm a, I'm a Christian. So should I transition back or should I stay as I am? And I'm standing there going, uh, what do you say? You know, like, and, and, and the midst of every single moment were questions like that. Because you're coming in with these defaults and you're coming in going, how can you help me with this next thing? And they're bringing in assumptions like, can I, like, so Ouija board and Bible, how do I put them together, right? You're like, they don't go together, right? Like all kinds of assumptions. I remember once during a sermon, okay, remember, they haven't been to church at all. So during a sermon, I asked a rhetorical question and the hand goes up, right? And I'm preaching and the hand's still up. He's like, ready to answer. I was like, it, what do I do? Like, this is, <laughs> you know, but, but they don't, they've never been to church, Right? So they're, they're just coming in, and they're, they're coming in, and they're just going, I'm ready for life. I'm ready. I think I've found it. I've seen the miracles. I've just tasted a hint of it. I, I think this is where life is found. And they come, and in the midst of it, when you can see it, instead of it being this morning, you go, wow, wow. In the midst of it, immediately, you just feel like this is this crisis moment, and all you realize how absolutely inadequate you are. That you don't have all the answers. You probably don't have the space in your living room. That you probably, your food isn't all that great and you keep burning it when you're trying to make snacks, right? It's down to the very basic stuff all the way up to the fact that I don't know how to answer all the questions. I don't know how to fix all the problems. I don't know how to meet every need. And what happens in the midst of when people are drawn to Jesus, when this happens, and guys, whenever God really moves, this is how you know when God's really moving and you didn't just manufacture something. When you manufacture something, it's funny how it just kind of the conveyor belt right into what you created, and then it just works, and then people come out on the other side. When God works, it's really messy because God works beyond our capacities. You know that statement, you know, the old thing, uh, God doesn't give you more than you can handle. I'm sorry if this presses someone, like, really steps on a sacred cow here, but I just, that is 
not true. Here's what I would say. God often does give us more than we can handle. And that is the whole point. Because what God often does is he does give us more than we can handle or he brings us to that place where we realize I've come to the limitations of my abilities, what I can do in my flesh, my intelligence, my ability to strategize, my ability to plan for my physical health to keep up with, with my schedule to keep up with. And he brings us to that point so we come to the end of our sufficiency and begin to come to the beginning of his and live in dependence on him. And when God works and life goes out, the message of it, and people begin responding, when it really happens, believe me, guys, we will hit this crisis moment where you realize this is way beyond your or mine or all of our collective capacities in and of ourselves. It doesn't mean planning is not important, but here's the thing. God doesn't call us to plan so that we no longer need him. From beginning to end, life is about walking in dependency, walking in step with the Spirit, walking with Christ, allowing Him to guide. So before moving on, because what Jesus wants to do is He's going to help the disciples take hold of His sufficiency, and He wants to help us do that, because God often uses that crisis point when we realize that we're insufficient to transform us the deep in our dependency on Him. So before we look though at Jesus and how he does that, let me just ask you real quick, where do you feel the crisis? Do you feel it anywhere right now? I, like, do you, you feel that? Where, where right now, maybe it's perhaps you open up your home and, and, then, and then they came and they came in mass and you're going, we don't have room for all these people. How are we going to make room for everyone, right? Maybe you open up your mouth and then they responded in mass text messages, mass questions, mass assumptions. You're going, I don't know how to answer all this. Maybe you opened up your, your lunch break. You opened up your schedule. You just made another hour available to coworkers, and you sat down with them, and then they responded, and they came, and they opened up, and they were vulnerable, and they're going, finally, someone who I can talk to, and they begin to actually share with you all this stuff in your life, and you're going, I don't know how to fix this. I don't know how to help them. See, when God does a work, which we've often dreamt, prayed, and planned for, he often has a work he wants to do what? in us as well. God wants to do a work in us just as well as he wants to do a work in anyone else. And he wants to do a work in us that's beyond what we could have dreamt, prayed, or planned for. He uses the crisis of the crowds to deepen our trust. So how does he do that? Watch, watch what Jesus does here. So Jesus asked Philip a question because he wanted to draw something out of him. And, and I think he does us as well. Look, continuing in verse 6, he said, you know, Jesus said to Philip, where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? And then verse 6, he said, he said this, Jesus said this to Philip, to test him, for he himself knew what he would do, right? And then Philip answered him, 200 denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little. So what's he doing here? Well, Philip responds exactly how we would, right? Imagine the crowds come, the people come in your workplace, the people, your whole neighborhood shows up now, right? Your, your whole dorm floor shows up. All those people that you were trying to talk to, just interested in faith, and all of a sudden they begin showing up, the neighborhood, the city shows up. Everyone from around when you drove in this morning, imagine all the strangers that just, they show up and now they're sitting in the row beside you. And, and all of a sudden you're looking around, you're going, oh my goodness, you see the need that is here. And, and, and Jesus is drawing out of Philip, and Philip goes, I see the need here. But when he looks around, he goes, Jesus, what do you mean, what am I going to do? There is no way that I could do anything. In fact, this thing, 200 denarii, that's actually about eight months worth of wages 
Eight months worth of wages. And he's looking around going, and this is 5,000 men. So this is, it means they counted it based upon probably like the head of a household. So there's 5,000 men. Now, that means a lot of them, high percentage, have a wife. And then there are a lot of kids. So this is well more than 5,000 people. And they see this crowd coming towards them. And he goes, what do you mean? There's no way I would have enough. And so he goes, do you understand, Jesus, even if I took eight months worth of my salary and I were to, to just go out and buy food, that wouldn't even be enough for everyone here to have like half of a happy meal, right? There isn't enough here. In the same way, we could say if I spent all my savings, if I spent 30 hours a day with people, if I answered every phone call, if I answered every text, it's still not enough. The crisis of the crowd reveals our insufficiency. Reveals our insufficiency. But here's the issue. Turn it around. Why here is he for the first time realizing, Philip realizing his insufficiency? Why is it hitting them like a ton of bricks that they're so insufficient? Here's why. Because they assumed that they were supposed to be and that they could be sufficient. This is why it's so shocking to them. Imagine this whole time Jesus opens up saying he was, they saw Jesus healing people. Like they saw people who were lame and Jesus walked up and he got them to walk. He saw, they saw Jesus feed people before. He saw, they saw Jesus read people's minds. They saw Jesus say things to people that just, they repented immediately and they, they changed their character and their life completely. They saw this again and again and again. And then in the midst of it, as soon as then they come to them, it's almost as if they expect that Jesus just hands the baton to them and goes, now it's all on you. And now I know that we might think, well, silly disciples, you know, those doubts are for kids, right? But we do the same thing. We know Jesus, Jesus, God come into the flesh. One, mystery of mysteries. God comes into the flesh. God lives a perfect life. Jesus dies, chooses to die for our sins. Then he rises out of the grave, and now he makes people who are dead, and it's impossible for them to live spiritually. He makes them alive in himself, and he promises them eternal life. And in the midst of that then, when we think of people coming into the church, we proclaim that message that it's all about Jesus and his sufficiency and what he can do to save you from your sins. But then as soon as it comes to them beginning to follow Jesus and them beginning to be sanctified and to grow and to begin to take those steps of faith, all of a sudden we live as if when they come through the doors, Now it's 100% on me. As Paul says in Galatians, he says, did you hear the gospel, this message in the Spirit, and the Spirit do the work, and then now you're going to continue in the flesh? And it's the same thing here where Jesus is saying, are you going to, do you think that this whole thing is about that you, you share the gospel and that I do the work, and then after that, church, you just continue in the flesh? No, we continue independence upon Christ, that he's the sufficient one. You know, one of the things here, wherever you may be feeling this, wherever you may have a, a sense that you don't know how to respond to someone in your life, and it doesn't mean you don't research answers, you don't try to find answers, you don't, you don't talk to people, other friends in the church who have wisdom, you try to figure that out. But I, I want to give you a word picture. One thing, I've, I've struggled with this for years as far as how do I respond just with with peace. And, and what Jesus calls us here, notice with the disciples, he just is like, hey, this whole time I'm here, turn to me. I'm sufficient. And, and what you see in places like 1 Peter 5 is Peter says, cast your burdens onto Jesus. 
That in the midst, and this is a, a, a text on shepherding and, and walking with others. And, and he says, cast your burdens on Jesus. And that, and that participle there of casting is actually only used elsewhere in the New Testament in the Gospels, and they cast their bags onto a donkey. And, and so what, what it's doing there, the word picture is whatever the burdens are when you're walking with someone. We often do this. I, I like saying instead of being a shepherd, we like to be a Sherpa. Okay, so uh, when I came from Southern California, there were, you know, like the Orange County housewives, and, and they would have like these trips to like Mount Everest, right? And they would hire someone. They'd be like, I climbed Mount Everest, and I took a selfie at the top. And they're like, no, you didn't. What you did was you took like your entire bureau of makeup and everything, and you had some guy carry it and lug it up the mountain, and then they like paved the way for you, and they carried all your junk while you got up there and you got to take a selfie. Meanwhile, everyone else is carrying the oxygen packs and all that kind of stuff. That's a Sherpa. A Sherpa is someone who carries your stuff for you. And oftentimes the way we respond in these situations, instead of turning to Jesus, is we go, we just don't want to admit we're not sufficient, and we try to carry all the stuff for them. We try to play the Sherpa. But instead, what Peter says is instead turn to your shepherd. And how do you act as an under-shepherd? Is what you do is you turn with them and you say, I don't have maybe right now the answer. I don't know exactly. I can't solve this. This is probably going to be a long row ahead that we're going to have to persevere through. But here's the thing. I will walk with you, but as I walk with you, I'm going to help you cast your burdens on Jesus. I'll walk with you, but I can't carry it for you. And so one of the things is, where are you right now? Where are you so overwhelmed by your sense of your insufficiency? Because you are insufficient. You're not meant to carry the burden. Jesus is. Where are you playing the Sherpa versus playing the shepherd and helping them cast their burdens on Christ? But one of the things that happens here is Jesus not only draws out this crisis of the crowds because he also draws out this second crisis that comes close behind it. If we don't begin helping one or cast our burdens, look to the sufficiency in Christ, but instead what happens is we notice the insufficiency in ourselves and then we actually start to look around and go, everyone else here is insufficient as well. This is the crisis of the congregation. Instead of turning to Jesus, what happens and says we turn on one another. Uh, look, continue in verse 8. So, you know, he says, we, we wouldn't have enough for everyone. And he says, one of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, there is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? Now, I love, <laughs> they're in the misery. They're like, there are all these people coming. We don't have food. How are we going to get food? And they're looking around, and they're like, we're, we're not sufficient. We don't have money. We can't buy this. No one else here has it. And they look over at this kid, and this kid's like, Sue me for actually bringing a lunch, right? Like, don't, like, like, I'm the only one who thought about the blood sugar out here in the wilderness, right? Like, I actually packed a lunch. I actually do not lunch shame me, disciple, right? Like, but instead, they look at him, they're like, it's, but here's what's going on here. They're looking around, they're going, and notice, they just look over at the one kid who has brought a contribution that could be shared, that Jesus is going to use. In the midst of it, they just begin critiquing it. They begin just seeing how little it is. In other words, it's, it's like your whole neighborhood finally shows up at the Bible study, right, with all their questions and, and their hunger, and, the, and they're filling up the space, and then all of you just look around your Bible study, and you're like, man, what are we going to do? And you're looking over here, and you're like, well, I guess we got Johnny here with his Bible degree to answer questions, right? And then we got, <laughs> it's like, we got, uh, and, and what desserts do we have? We got Susie's muffins, right? They're from a box, Right? Like what happens is in the midst of it, when you realize your insufficiency is immediately begin looking around and critiquing and saying everyone else here is insufficient as well. 
Rather than turning to Jesus and going, where do we go for sufficiency? Actually, what we do is we tend to not only not want to address the insufficiency in ourselves, but we actually want to turn and only critique the insufficiency in others around us. In other words, the temptation when we realize our insufficiency is to turn, not to turn to Jesus' sufficiency, but to turn on one another, critiquing one another's insufficiency. So rather than seeing what God could do with each person's contribution, to begin critiquing and belittling what each of us brings. Because again, here's the thing. We will always be able to find critique because there is no one, no one who is sufficient. One of the things that I was reflecting on this when it hit me, this dynamic, is just how over and over one of the saddest tragedies in the history of the church, the last 2,000 years has been how after revival and revival and revival and revival comes schism and schism and schism and schism. I mean division immediately after revival over and over again. Because the crisis of the crowds quickly evolves into a crisis in the congregation. Let me make a, a prediction. I'm going to say, dare I say, a prophecy, right? How about a double dog prophecy? There we go. Uh, we'll, sorry, I'm done with the double dog thing. We'll face this crisis of the congregation when God works in our midst. This temptation and this moment will come. Instead of acknowledging our insufficiency where we assumed we were sufficient, what's going to be very natural to us is to throw up our hands and go, Whose plan was this anyways? Whose idea was this? Whose harebrained scheme was this? Did no one have a plan? Look at the fish and loaves. To look around and critique one another's loaves and fish. If we just had a more charismatic CG leader, if we just had a, we had a preacher who didn't say double dog in his sermons, right? If we just had programs to put those people in, that would just fix it. And what happens over time, then we say, you know what? We just need a new church that is sufficient for this. In other words, I want to find the church. I want to find the people, the community of God that has sufficient loaves and fish. When deep down what's going on in our heart is I just do not want to, I do not want to have to deal with this crisis moment. I just don't want to go where it's easy. That is why Jesus is just as concerned to address the disciples' hearts as he is to providing for the crowds in this scene. Think about it. He doesn't just address the crowds and feed them, but he also draws something out of his disciples. Why? Because he knows this is really cancerous if it spreads. Because he knows he'll do the work. He knows he's sufficient. The question is, will they trust him as the sufficient one? Listen, I, I remember... I. I struggled a lot with this in the midst of a lot of that growth I shared about earlier. We were also in the middle of a, a, a massive merger with another church and, uh, where we kind of absorbed this massive property. We absorbed an, a, congr a smaller congregation that came into our midst, and it was just lots and lots of stuff coming from every which way. And here's the thing. In the midst of it, when I realized we were brought to the end of ourselves in this crisis moment, here's the thing. I fell into this critique moment. I started just looking around. I, I looked around to other people in the church, and I'm just like, man, all we got are... Jimmy's loaves and fish. And started critiquing versus seeing what God could possibly do. 
And, and one, I remember I sat down with a mentor, Mark. He had been in ministry for years. He was in his 60s, and he sat me down. He said something that I remember hit me, and you may have heard this statement before. It was the first time I ever heard it. He said, Matt, God doesn't call the qualified. He qualifies the called. And the thing is, in the midst of when God does a work, he isn't, God doesn't wait until we've got it all together. God doesn't wait until we're, we're qualified and he goes, well, I'm going to call them. They got together. In the Old Testament, he's like, Israel, why did I pick you? Not because you were more numerous, not because you were more mighty, not because you were the best looking or you're the tallest guys or the most talented guys. I chose you because I set my affection upon you. In fact, God often uses the weak things of the world. And what God does is he is glorified in the midst of when you realize this crisis, how in the world could this come together? How in the world could lives be healed? How in the world could lives be changed? How in the world could this thing be something where you see just life come about? And in the midst of it, when you see your inadequacy, you see your insufficiency, all of a sudden you see Christ do things that are miraculous. Because the whole point is we never could. And so it's that, and it's seeing that miracle of his sufficiency that Jesus is inviting the disciples and us into with this passage. So lastly, the call to contribute. Uh, Jesus then does what only he can do. Look at verses 10 through 14. It says, Jesus said, have the people sit down. And now there was much grass in the place. So the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. And Jesus took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated. So also the fish, as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, he told the disciples, gather up the leftover fragments and nothing, that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who has come into the world. So notice Jesus is just completely at peace. Right? Whatever the problems are, and listen, we bring our, whatever problems we're bringing to Jesus and our needs. Jesus isn't running around the throne going, ah, I didn't, ah, what, what? I didn't expect that today. It wasn't on my bingo card, right? When people are coming into our lives, all that Jesus just says, have them sit. Have them sit. He's calm. He's at peace. And then he gives them this beautiful invitation. He takes these meager loaves and fish, this, this boy's small contribution where he just holds it with open hands and he says, it's yours. And what Jesus does is he takes this small offering, this small contribution, and he takes it and he multiplies it in only the way that he can, where it's more than enough. And, and notice what happens here. It's in the midst of when he does that. You can imagine the disciples, they're distributing it, and then they're filling up the baskets. And what they realize is, in the midst of it, what a miracle has happened. And see, what happens is Jesus invites us into the work, not because he needs us to do the work, not because we're the sufficient ones, and he's just hoping that he puts the A team together so that he can get this whole kingdom come thing done. But instead, he's inviting us into having a front row seat to seeing him do the miraculous. The whole point is that he doesn't make any of us sufficient. The whole point is that we're insufficient. Yet he invites us in and he says, bring your contribution, bring your weakness, bring your feeble answers, bring your just your small attempts, bring that hour of time you have, bring that little bit of energy you have, bring your widow's might, bring it, even if it's just the faith of a mustard seed, and I will multiply it beyond what you could have dreamt, you could have imagined, you could have ever thought was possible, because that is the kind of God I am, and I want you to see not just me do, just see crowds, but I want you to see me do a miracle in the midst of the crowds. I want you to see me and God calls each of us 
He calls each of us. Do you see? This is the reason why. And I just want to say, this is why we as a church, this is why we want to be a church where everyone is contributing and everyone is playing a part, because we want you to see the miracle. We want you in the midst of it to know, yes, in the midst of it. I know it's crazy when there's a couple hundred of us and we're all aware, like, whoa, how's this going to happen, right? Well, in the midst of it, guess what? Over and over again, that's exactly when God happens. You're never at a point where you look around, you go, yep, got it, got it, got it, Right? You're never there in your own life. Do you think it's going to happen in the church? In the midst of it, though, then you see how God shows up and he uses your weakness, my weakness, the giftings that he's given us, even though they're not sufficient, and how he brings a miracle again and again and again. So how do you discern that calling? How do you discern what your loaves and fish are, right? This is hopefully just a helpful practical tool to overlap some of what we did in the churchwide retreat a few weeks ago, uh, but I, I think they were able to get them in there. Uh, I, sent over, I accidentally didn't send over the slides this morning. Shh, they're doing a great job. Uh, so with one, passion. One of the things is ask yourself, what makes you tick? Passion. I'm going to give you three components here. And at the intersection of these is where your calling to contribute lies. Passion. What makes you tick? Is it something, and, and usually this is something to deal with our, or that comes from our life experiences. Normally, if you look back at your life experiences, a lot of those, those positive life experiences that you have have developed a passion. Maybe your passion is to help men or women develop. Maybe your passion is to help uh, to, to nurse for kids. Maybe your passion is to help the sick, to bring mercy to those in need. What is your passion? What makes you tick? Then the second one is what is your proficiency? What are you proficiency at? Uh, what are you good at? Now, you could also because I love making the words go together, what can you make tick, right? What can you make tick? What can you make work? What are you skilled at? Are you skilled with your hands? Are you skilled with systems? Are you skilled as an admin? Are you skilled with healing? Are you skilled with making meals? Are you skilled with writing encouragement notes? What are you proficient at that you have a skill at that you develop? And where those two come together, and here's the third piece that has to come with it, is what is your burden? What is the burden? Or in other words, you can put, what's your problem? <laughs> what's the problem you see in the world? Which, what ticks you off? What ticks you off? Now, and, and here's what I mean by that, is what is the thing that when you wake up, you're like, man, when you see it, you're like, it's unjust. It's unjust. That needs to be remedied. That needs to be fixed. And here's the thing. Instead of just constantly critiquing and just seeing that thing and getting angry about that thing and getting ticked off about the thing, perhaps it's where God has given you an eye to see it so that you can contribute Oftentimes, it's where we have a burden for the world that we see things that others around us can't see. And where those three come together, think of it like a Venn diagram, where your passion, your proficiency, and your burden, in the middle of where those come together is your calling, and your calling to contribute, where those three come together. So for instance, for myself, if I were to walk through this, my passion, I love truth. I, like just, just finding out new truth and learning and being able to apply it, that is my passion in life. And I, I love helping people get that. And so my, my proficiency, what I'm good at, I'm actually pretty good at taking a lot of info and complex info and distilling it down and putting it together. And how does this apply to everyday life? And then after that, my burden, what ticks me off is it ticks me off when people are living based upon untruth. It really ticks me off. Like, I'll get up at five in the morning. If I read something where it's like somebody was like mis misled or something, I'll be like, just Argh. Walking around somewhere, right? Like I, 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 so here's my thing. My purpose in life, where it comes together, my contribution specifically, where I'm most passionate, is helping people navigate our cultural moment with theological fidelity. I know it's a mouthful, but I love helping people navigate what's going on in the world with truth. 
and you have something too that God has given you where those three come together. And he's saying, I've given you these loaves and these fish. And, and I placed you in this body and I placed you here so that when needs come up, you would look around and you would step forward and you would say, this is the contribution that I have. And I hold it with open hands. And here's the thing, guys. We as a church are at a pivot point in our growth of going, there are a lot of areas that are needing contribution. One of the things we unveiled at the retreat were some of the individuals who are, are diaconate candidates, deacon candidates, where we're moving forward initiatives in the areas of like mercy or advocacy. Things like how do we respond to the needs that are coming into the church in terms of like finances and looking for home and food and things like that. And then the, the other areas are things like member care. Like what do you do to serve? How do you coordinate members of the body, bringing meals for those who are having babies, who those who are in the hospital, visiting those who are stuck in the hospital, uh, meeting the needs that are in the body, just encouraging one another, different events that are going on. We have lots of teams right now. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to just say the thing that everyone's like, here he goes kids, our kids' ministry. If you have a passion for the next generation, if you have a passion for seeing kids grasp the gospel, seeing their eyes like light up when they first see something for the first time, of, of giving them those, those basic truths that then they're able and then giving them resources to take home throughout the week for their parents to walk with them and just cultivate that, if that's something that you're passionate about, then we, you always, we're a growing church that always, our needs for volunteers and kids is always outpacing it. Any of these things I'm saying, you can go over there underneath the lights. I'm even down to the fact if you're like, it bugs me when like a slide doesn't immediately pop up. Guess what? We need contribution back there, hitting a button. Can you hit an enter button? And that's your burden? Well, for, for to see the slides go, we need people there. But listen, we have things, initiatives that are coming up that are going to be being rolled out that are partnering with ministries around the city. How do we go out and see needs met throughout the city, missions, things like that. If you're going, I want to know, I have something where I can contribute, then just go underneath the lights. One of the things we're doing right now is going, who all is here and helping you get partnered with the place where you can contribute? And so here's the thing. If you're asking where can I contribute, stop over under there. One of the things we're doing right now is helping you identify that. But I would encourage you. It could even be, I remember last week or two weeks ago, I was talking to somebody in the body and they go, man, I'm just noticing how I don't want young professionals, singles, left out of the loop. And they said, so you know what? I talked to my wife and what we want to do is we want to just once a week or every two weeks have a night where we invite them open or over open house. We're going to have dinner. You're part of our family. What is that? That's seeing a need in the body and they're going, I'm... I, actually, I think I have a burden for that, and I could actually contribute something. Just think about that hour of time. Think about how you can contribute. What are your loaves and fish, and what is the one way you can contribute? Uh, so in closing, you know, a few, uh, the retreat a few weeks ago, we used the illustration of rowing together. Um, we had this illustration of we're really at the retreat to learn. We're all rowing in a boat together. How do we identify our oar, and how do we contribute? What's our part to play? And... Uh, and I know I just did a whole thing last week. I'm burning the boat. And now I'm going to talk about rowing in a boat. Sorry about that. Um, I am well aware. Uh, but we use that picture of rowing because it captures what God calls us to do. We are in this boat together. And we're all called to contribute our gifts and rubbing shoulders and giving ourselves to Christ's call. And why, again, it's not just so we'd be so organized that we'd be machine and we'd be able to just draw in big crowds. We do it because we want to do church differently, or I would even just say biblically, where the whole body is doing the work of the ministry, contributing what God has given them to contribute, and having a front row seat to see God do the miraculous. Because the whole point of this scene is not merely just to see what God can do, but to see who he is. 
That's why right after this scene, John includes this scene with the disciples in the boat. Verses 15 through 21, it says that Jesus went down to the sea and got into the boat. The wind, the sea became rough because the strong wind was blowing. When they had rowed about three or four miles, Jesus saw, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat. They were frightened. They said to them, it is I, do not be afraid. Then they were glad to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. Why is this included? Why is this just all of a sudden inserted here? Jesus is saying, I'm not just the God who can multiply fish. I am. I am the one who is Lord of the sea. I have a thousand, I own the cattle on a thousand hills. So when the crisis comes, when the sea of life is rough and the headwinds blow against you, when the needs seem overwhelming, the questions are stunting, the messiness perplexing, Jesus says, no, it is I, or in the Greek, another way you could translate that statement is literally, I am. I am. I am the Lord of the heavens and the earth. I am the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. I am, and I am with you. I'm in the boat. I'm in the boat. So whatever comes, Anthem, keep rowing, keep contributing, keep trusting, keep going, because he says, I will bring you to the other shore. I am with you. It is in the boat, rowing together, contributing our loaves and fish that Christ draws profoundly near. So as you look up over the next few months, possibly you're already seeing it, and you see the crowds coming in your life, what contribution has God called you to? What are your loaves and fish? Because in this next season, we'll each be called to contribute what we have with open hands. That way we can watch the miracle together. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for, Lord, this passage and just a reminder that, yes, we are not sufficient for these things, but you are. And so, Lord, would you just encourage us with these things and show each of us where our contribution lies? And, Lord, would we not run in the crisis moment? Would we not just turn and make it a crisis among the congregation? But, Lord, we would encourage the gifting in others. We wouldn't just critique the gifting in others, but we would encourage and fan into flame the work that you were doing, Spirit. So, Lord, we ask that you would lead us. You would be our sufficiency. You would take these loaves and fish of ours that we each bring and you would multiply them. And Lord, we want to see you do what only you can do. Lord, we know we have to acknowledge our insufficiency to see it. And so Lord, would you multiply these loaves and these fish and do a miracle in our midst. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen.